This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, a new low-cost ADSB out solutions on the horizon. And speaking of new, new eVTOL rules are emerging. Also, the FAA is looking into the whole DPE system. And there are concerns about Cessna spars on 177 and Cessna 210 singles. All right, Dave, you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do some Hangar Talk, Ian. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, counterattack final 132.4. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. And uh, David, our guest this week, this is a little bit of a departure for us, but I think it's going to be really interesting for folks. Our guest is Michelle Hanlon. Michelle is a space lawyer, which I just think is kind of cool. Um, that'd be a neat business card. Um, and she's the uh, co-founder of For All Moonkind, which is seeking to preserve the landing sites on the moon. And Ian, we're going to talk to Michelle because we're nearing the 50th anniversary of the Apollo moon launch mission. And that mission actually launched from Cape Kennedy on July 16, 1969, and landed on the moon July 20th, 50 years ago. Yeah, very cool stuff and uh, really excited to talk to her. And so she'll be on in a few minutes. But uh, let's start with some uh, technology closer to Earth here. UAvionics, we know them as the folks who make the Sky Beacon. That's the wingtip ADSB out, really quick compliance method piece of equipment there. And they're working on and now have certified tail beacon. Ian, I think this is great news for folks who are owners of certain airplanes like the Mooney line, the Air Coops, Grumman's, and several others that can put this device in the tail area. And they now can avoid having to do like dual wingtip sky beacons. And this is really good news for a lot of folks. And it, and it could be a harbinger of other things to come. Yeah. Now, these these guys, it's just a really fascinating little piece of technology. And yeah, like you're saying, really small, put it on a wingtip. Um, they come from the uh, UAV world, which I think is why they've got this sort of miniaturized technology. But this tail beacon, it's really cool. They say it takes like 10 minutes to put it in, an hour total, including paperwork. So you can buy it now. It's TSO'd. They're taking pre-orders. Um, the STCs, they say, will come soon. But even if the airplane that you have is not on the STC list, 
it's a minor alteration. And so an ANP can do this and just quickly sign it off. And the other thing to note about the Sky Beacon line, Ian, is that it is relatively inexpensive in airplane monetary units, AMUs, as we're fond of saying here on uh, Hangar Talk. But uh, we're only we're talking about, you know, uh, something that's relatively affordable for a lot of folks in the legacy fleet. And I think that's good news for a lot of us who are penny pinchers. Yeah. So the Sky Beacon, I think uh, I'm just looking at one site, Pacific Coast. They happen to sell it for anywhere from 1400 to about 1850 The Tail Beacon's a little more expensive. It's 1650 to about 2000 So you're going to pay just a little bit more, but a really cool piece of technology. And so far, really good reviews from folks who have done it. Sounds like good stuff on the horizon, Ian. Yeah, definitely. Hey, speaking of that, new tech horizon, you know, looking out, eVTOL, it's something we touch on occasionally here. And we we often talk about the rules and how complicated it's going to be to kind of integrate these things into airspace and into the traffic flow and how you're going to certify the vehicles and everything else. And it looks like EASA is taking the lead and has developed some sort of basic certification rules. Yeah, the European Aviation Safety Agency has issued a special condition for the certification of these up-and-coming eVTOLs, electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. And they've got a couple of different categories for this. And you and I were chatting a little bit off podcast about this. It sounded to me a little bit like how we kind of do IFR flights and where we have an alternate airport where we're looking at these aircraft having sort of two different ways to land in case of an emergency, one being overpopulated areas and another over uncongested areas. Yeah, and it's uh, what I find I think most fascinating about this is if you go on on the web and you find the actual document, and so you just you can Google it, EASA, you know, eVTOL certification. It you know you would think with a really complicated systems and really sort of this international governing body that this would be some you know thousand page document. It's like thirty pages, and basically what they've done is very plain language, performance based standards, which I, I find very interesting. As you read through it, it's not super prescriptive like Part Twenty Three is. It just basically says things like, well, if the airplane can stall, you got to be able to stall it, you know, nicely, essentially, and safely. And so it's really fascinating, I think, the way they've done it. Yeah, and just a couple of the details that they have listed so far that I jumped into, so sort of at a, a high angle of looking at this, is that if you're using them privately in a way for a congested area, you've got to certify that you can make a quote-unquote controlled emergency landing during an in-flight emergency, you know, I'm not sure what a control, what a controlled emergency landing <laughs> might look like. Yeah, right. In one of those, and then, but then uh, more stringent uh, is uh, the eVTOLs that have a takeoff weight of about 7,000 pounds and that carry up to nine passengers. And this would be over congested areas, and it's more stringent for that. And uh, those are going to be used in more point-to-point transportation. I think that's what worries a lot of people that you're flying over people in vehicles with, uh, you know, a handful of folks inside. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, and to your point about the the emergency landings, it's like they've already said, and it makes sense, um, and we're glad to hear it, that, for example, you can't have a single point of failure that results in some catastrophe. And so, yeah, go ahead and, and actually read these, because I, I do think they're really interesting. You find everything from, you know, sort of occupant safety to, like I said, flight characteristics. They address, you know, a lot of these have different control mechanisms, and so they have to keep that very general. And so uh, it'll be a framework, I think, to see how kind of the FAA moves forward with it. Well, I think, like you said, I think that a lot of that does trickle down to what we'll see here in the States. And so I'm pretty excited to see something get out there, and we'll stay tuned.
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So moving on to the FAA now, the DPE system, the designated examiners, designated pilot examiners. This has been a system that I think has been in trouble for a couple of years now. You've gotten some retirements out of the DPE ranks. They put some policies into place that really sort of tightened it down. And so what you're finding is prices going up and weights for check rides going way up as well. And so now the FAA is looking into this and is going to develop a group, actually, that will give more sort of comprehensive recommendations to hopefully ease the backlog and and reform the system going forward. So are we finding that the backlog is due to the fact that there are not enough DPEs out there, Ian, or is it because some of the regs are real complicated and it's hard, basically it's hard to establish yourself in that kind of a business? Well, I think it's a few things. I mean, yeah, just like anywhere, you know, it's like they're looking for pilots, right? So they're looking for DPEs. There were some retirements. I know the FAA actually systematically went through and sort of cleaned up the DPE ranks. There were a couple of bad actors, and they got rid of those. They tightened geographic restrictions. So they said, you know, DPEs could only give check rides in their area. They said they can only give two check rides a day, which to me seems reasonable, but um, some folks didn't really like that, and and they did some other things, but they're they're starting to kind of loosen that a little a little bit. They've now gone to you can do three check rides a day, you don't have to stay in your geographic area, and so I think it's helping a little bit, but um, it seems clear that more needs to be done. In other words, there's a little bit of a funnel point here for folks who are achieving and earning their private pilot certificates, their instrument certificates, their commercial and ATPs because. The DPE ranks are are not as full as they could be. And with those restrictions, it's more of a you're squeezing people basically on both ends. And then there aren't enough DPEs to go around and less time to do it. So now they're going to open up their time. They have a little bit more leeway, like you said, geographically and also a three flight test a day maximum without additional approval, quote unquote, that would be helpful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So actually, you know, the FAA, these working groups, they want users on these things. So if you have strong feelings about this, you have innovative ideas, whatever, you you have a stake in it, you can apply actually to join this working group and they're going to work for about a year. And uh, that group will give official recommendations to the FAA on how to move forward. That sounds good. So another way for pilots and Hangar Talk listeners to get their voices heard. You've got 12 months to uh, to make them heard and do it. Yeah, that's right. Hey, moving on, uh, another FAA issue. This with Cessna 210s. There was a bad accident in uh, Australia. And of course, we know these aircraft are aging and they've been used in various ways over the years. So this accident uh, re- was actually the result of a structural failure. And so the FAA now is looking into 210s and 177s, and they want to know what's going on with those spars. Yeah, that's true, Ian. Um, I always thought the 177 Cardinal was a real sexy-looking airplane, and for years and years I wanted to buy one. I, in fact, joined the Cardinal Owners uh, Group, the Cessna Cardinal Own- Owners Group. I think they're really neat. I thought they were really uh, ahead of their time, the way they looked, and they're just more sleek. But look, let's let people know that the accident in Australia was a, a really a heavily loaded 210, and it was doing. It had a lot of time in service, and it was sort of modified in a way that we wouldn't see that because it had a tail boom, integral wing tanks, and some other specialized equipment in place of the rear seats. Basically a non-standard 210. So there is alarm. And yes, we should all be looking for corrosion in our wing spars. Aircraft owners should be always vigilant for that. But um, a little bit more to this, there's a little bit more to it than than what we know. Yeah, and that's a great point. I mean, I think what the FAA is saying here is, hey, we know this particular accident was maybe a little unusual. We want to know how far down the chain, how far down sort of the operating chain 
does this problem go? And so they're asking folks to to make reports and to see if the, is this really common? I mean, does this happen more often with, you know, maybe even lower time airframes as a result of age? Or are we talking about, like you said, modified airplanes, heavy use, low altitude, you know, whatever the case may be. So they're looking for more information. That's right. And one thing to point out to our podcast listeners who might not be up on all the details of the Cessna line, the Cessna 177 and the 210, these are aircraft, you know, high wing aircraft that don't have struts. So they do look a little bit differently. And there is a little bit less structural componentry there to that that meets the eye. There's probably a lot more underneath. But um, that's what it is, and they look a little bit different to the eye. So that's how plane spotters can spot these particular aircraft. Yeah, yeah, that's right. All right, moving on. Finally, this week we're going to talk about fuel, the FAA Piston Aviation Fuels Initiative, PAFI. We don't talk about this a lot because there's not much to talk about in terms of the whole process. They only give updates every so often. The last big update was that basically they had to kind of put the brakes on the whole initiative because they were finding that the uh, some of the remaining candidate fuels just weren't performing. And the latest update basically says, well, that's still the case, and it's bad enough that apparently we're going to evaluate some more fuels and go back in time a little bit. Well, that's right. You were just mentioning that the Swift fuels, they sort of withdrew, and they were one of the front runners there in that PAFI, the alternate fuel methodology testing. So I wonder if there are other players on the horizon that are going to step up to the plate here and help steer this in the right direction too. Yeah, I think we'll find out soon enough maybe who these other fuels are from. I mean, we know there's some that are kind of operating on the periphery. So you mentioned Swift. They dropped out of the process and are kind of going it alone. GAMI has developed their own fuel. They're trying to go through the STC process. And so the, really the only one left was Shell, and they were finding, well, there were some major problems. So it's looking like we're, we're sort of back to square one. And they're a big player, too. Yeah. If, Shell, yeah. if Shell being a big player and a lot of money behind them, if they're having trouble, you know, it, it makes one wonder what's next on the horizon. And I guess the key thing for airplane owners is that we want some of that sort of a quote-unquote drop-in replacement where we don't have to replace our fuel lines and other componentry and also something that's you know equivalent in weight so that you don't have to rebalance the aircraft or mess with your uh, center of gravities. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And cost, too. I mean, I saw one comment online, and I think we need to clear this up a little bit, that people were saying, well, essentially, if there's only one fuel provider, that means that we're going to pay a ton for fuel because it's a monopoly. And I think that the thinking is that one part, one company will go through this process, through this PAFI process, get the fuel approved, and then potentially will license it to other refineries that will then also produce the fuel. So I don't think we're going to end up with one actual fuel supplier, but it does seem like we're going to hopefully come out of the PAFI with one fuel standard. So one standard that other folks can sort of have competition and meet and offer their products, uh, and depending on the, what part of the country you're in, it might be you know, one supplier on the East Coast, one supplier on the West Coast, that kind of thing. So there will be a little bit more to it than just it won't be in a, a monopoly is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, hey, David, I want to talk to Michelle Hanlon now. Really interesting person, fascinating background. And like we said at the top, you know, not in our GA wheelhouse necessarily, but I just think this is a, a really interesting aspect of, of space and kind of the future of space exploration that we're really not thinking about. So 
So, Michelle, thank you so much for joining us. And tell us, if you would, a little bit about what is For All Moonkind. Hi, and thanks. I'm so delighted to be here with you. And I always appreciate the opportunity to talk about For All Moonkind and space in general. Uh, For All Moonkind is a nonprofit organization and the only organization in the world dedicated to preserving and protecting our history in space. So if you think about the moon and the Apollo lunar landing sites and the Luna lunar landing sites and other landing sites from other countries, we're coming upon a very important anniversary on the 20th, 50 years since humans first set foot on another celestial body. It's just an incredible achievement. It's humankind's greatest technological achievement ever. And we really want to protect those bootprints for our children and our grandchildren and, and all of our progeny. So really, the, the whole premise is interesting because I think a lot of people would have assumed that they were already protected, but it maybe that's not the case. No, it is. It's really interesting because a lot of people that we speak to think, oh, well, of course, it's a national park, right? And the vagaries of space law make it impossible for the United States to say it's a national park or even a national historic site. Under the Outer Space Treaty, no nation may claim any territory anywhere in outer space. So even to say, oh, we need to protect this, that's claiming some sort of property ownership over it. And we can't do that. That's why we need to work as an international community to protect those sites. And, and you know, and it's really important because it's a human achievement, not just an American achievement. And so it's really important that we do get the whole international community to embrace this and recognize it as such, because I think it's every bit as important for a little girl in Mississippi to recognize that humans have done this as it is for a little girl in Ghana to say, yeah, that's that's a human achievement. I can do that too. It should inspire everybody around the world. Yeah. So you mentioned that the United States can't just exert sovereignty over something like this. So how do you how do you do this through the international community? How do you get international players on board? It's a fascinating process and, uh, and one that's taking a little bit longer than we thought. My background is in uh, mergers and acquisitions. I was a corporate lawyer for 25 years. And when we formed For All Moonkind in July 2017, we, we actually really thought, okay, we're going to get this done in time for the anniversary. Nobody wants a charity to hang around forever. We're going to get two years, we'll be done. But then... <laughs> Then we were introduced to the international community and realized that it's going to take a little bit longer than that. Um, but that's okay because it's a really important process. If you think about it, you know, you've heard of the World Heritage Convention here on Earth and UNESCO administers that. The way that works is that if you can only nominate a site that's within your territory. So again, we can't make the World Heritage Convention apply in space because of that, that one little uh, stricture. But what's really interesting is that the World Heritage Convention has been ratified by 193 nations. So we all agree about preservation. What we need to figure out is how to make that agreement work in space and move away from sort of this sovereignty paradigm. And so that's what's going to be difficult. And that's what's taking a long time. We're so used to doing everything here on Earth, even in aviation. It's all by nation, right? You know, we ICAO set standards, but nations apply them to their nationals. So how do we shift that thinking when we explore space? And it's it's something that's going to cover not just preservation, ultimately, it's going to cover the way we explore space. And we think it's really important that the way we explore space ought to be as a human species and not as different sovereign nations. And so what we have to do is basically, you know, you asked, how do we go about doing that? We are very proud to have been named permanent observers to the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, 
which is the international body that sort of looks at space laws. They're the body that developed the Outer Space Treaty, which space lawyers consider the Magna Carta for space activities. And they, they've helped promulgate things like the remote sensing guidelines and principles and debris mitigation principles. And so they're really the first stop in, in this concept of how are we going to protect our heritage in outer space. And so we've been permanent observers now for less than a year, but we've been to three sessions in February, April, and then June. And we've been really vocal. We are given the opportunity to uh, share our views over 10 minutes. And we're also given the opportunity to share technical presentations. And in June, we had a what's called a side event. What's been really, really gratifying and really great is that there's skepticism, not about the concept, but about how we're going to do it which we think is really has just been so gratifying because nobody has said, well, preservation is a bad idea in space. I mean, we get, it's funny because we, we have a Facebook site and um, we're getting trolled a little bit by people who think, you know, well, why are we worried about space and so forth? But people who are vested in the exploration of space understand that we need to protect our history in space and that we have a really unique opportunity to do so. We've made a lot of mistakes on Earth with respect to preservation, and we have the opportunity to, to do this right so that 3,000 or 3 million years from now, our progeny won't be you know, having to dig around on the moon like, where did they land? Are you sure? Was it here? Was it there? Well, no, we'll have protected it for them. So we won't have to discover buried footprints somewhere. And so the reception from the international community has been really great. But again, the skepticism is, how are you going to get this done? And we have a team of about 40 lawyers from around the world looking into that. We're constantly, you know, on the on the Zoom conference calls, we're working to put together a manual basically that says, this is what preservation should look like or can look like. These are all the issues we have to solve. Here are some ways to solve them. And that's what we want to just start the international conversation um, and, are, and are really hopeful that we can get this solved within a very reasonable time frame. You mentioned the pre-existing space treaty. What exactly does that cover? So the Outer Space Treaty uh, was negotiated in the 60s, and it came about, basically, think about Sputnik and when the Soviets beat the U.S. into space. There was a really an understanding, even back then in the throes of the Cold War, that we don't want space to be a domain of war. And so the nations created the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space to develop a treaty, basically, that would do that, that would say, okay, we're going to keep at least try to keep peace in space. And so the Outer Space Treaty, the main tenets are that space is the province of all humankind, that space shall be free for the use and exploration by all, and that you can't put weapons in space, weapons of mass destruction or nuclear weapons. And it's done a really good job of keeping the peace ever since. You know, I look at the Outer Space Treaty as a huge win, you know, and it's also really guiding principles for us, I think, and, and our generation and, and next generations, that in the midst of the Cold War, nations were able to get together and find a way to try and keep the peace. And I think that's really heartening and a really great development. And it also shows how important space is in terms of trying to keep the peace in the future. Space is, is universal. It belongs to everybody. And it provides universal benefits to everybody on Earth. And there's no reason why we can't keep the peace in space and manage the exploration and utilization in a sustainable and successful way. And how many countries have ratified it? I believe right now we have 103 countries that have ratified the Outer Space Treaty. 
basically every spacefaring nation has ratified. And I think, you know, the, the outliers that we should be worried about who haven't are Iran and North Korea. But there is an argument to be made that um, there's something called development of customary international law. I'm sure that there's instances of this in aviation. But if things happen long enough and it becomes understood, that's the law. We don't even need to codify it somewhere. And so arguably, some of the most basic tenets of the Outer Space Treaty, the freedom and use of exploration, the don't put weapons up there, that those are now customary international laws. So if a country has not ratified the treaty and tries to put something up there, arguably, that would be a violation of customary international law at that point. It's actually an interesting concept. One of the things that the Outer Space Treaty does is it makes nations responsible for their nationals. So the United States is responsible for all of the actions of Americans in space. And so that's why we have licensing process for launches, for remote sensing, for, for telecommunication satellites. There is, you know, in, in, a, in a sort of policy wonk, academic concern kind of way, there is a, a little bit of a concern if a country has not ratified the space treaty that we could have a race to the bottom as access to space gets cheaper. And there may be some nations who decide, oh, well, we'll, we'll let anybody launch. And then what will the, what will the international community do at that point? Um, but that's, that's really a rather academic concern, um, but one, one that I think space lawyers like to think about. How much of this is an issue that you're trying to address today? And, and really, how much of it are we talking like way, way in the future, decades into the future? Well, the, the thing about space and um, one thing that the UN Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space and the UN Office of Outer Space Affairs is really working on is trying to get every nation to recognize how important space is to what they do. And, and they've just announced a new effort to try and get every nation to sign and ratify the Outer Space Treaty. So it's a concern that is not immediate, but certainly something that can be prevented, so why not? And it's really just an education for many countries. And a lot of countries, developing countries, will say, well, we, we do nothing with space. Why should we worry? And this is, you know, looking to the future, realizing not only do we all use space now, you think about, you know, remote sensing to figure out the weather, is there a hurricane, where should we plant the next crop, even to prevent and stop human trafficking at phones, telecommunications, ATMs. So every country on Earth benefits from space. And even if the country is not spacefaring yet, how inspirational is it, you know, to think about getting education for your children to access and use space. And the first step is to sign the Outer Space Treaty and agree to join the international community in recognizing space for all and space for peaceful purposes. And how much of it is really, you know, core preservation, like protecting those footprints that we were talking about and other artifacts? And, and how much are we talking about preserving maybe future resources and protecting those resources? Oh, I, I, I would keep those completely separate. I think that it's a, it's a really, really great question because we see the, the two in, intertwined completely. Because when we talk about protecting our heritage, we're talking about having to zone off an area and say, okay, nobody can go there. And when we talk about natural resources and the resources that we think are on the moon, on asteroids, on, on other celestial bodies, we're talking about the same thing. How are we going to decide what company or what nation gets to mine that particular part of the moon or that particular asteroid? The Outer Space Treaty, is, as I mentioned earlier, it says no nation may claim 
any territory in space. What about the resources, though? And so the United States has passed a law that says, well, if you extract the resources, you can consider them yours. And that's a really smart way to look at it, because if you think about it, if, if you're a private company and you extract the resource and then somebody says, oh, no, you can't sell it because it belongs to all of humankind or you have to share the profits with all of humankind, who's going to invest in figuring out how to mine those resources if you're not going to get a return on your investment or if your return is questionable? And so it's a fine line. The international space community is still split on whether it's legal or not under the Outer Space Treaty to say if you mine it, you own it. But what the international community is coming around to is, okay, we have to address this now, though. We have to figure out how we're going to do this because whether or not the concept of if you mine it, you own it violates the Outer Space Treaty or not, people are going up there to mine it, and we ought to figure out a way to manage that. How far away are we from mining you know, and actually extracting resources? We're several decades away. But think about the infrastructure that you need to start that. So first, you're going to put a couple rovers and generators on the moon. And so China is talking about creating a base on the South Pole. Those are things we have to worry about now because those are going to happen now. And so when you look at where Tranquility Base is, how are we going to protect that without creating a precedent for any time you land something on the moon, then you, then that that's your territory on the moon or that then that's protected and nobody else can use it. The moon's going to get really crowded and we can't have that kind of a regime as we move forward. How do you draw such a line? I mean, do you talk about just preserving the current sites and what we've done thus far or... Do you have to maybe pare back on some of those uh, past sites? How, how do you how do you draw that line? Another really great question and one that we struggle with, um, frankly. So the first thing we need to do is actually identify everything that's up there. What people don't realize is that there are more than 100 sites on the moon with evidence of human activity. So everything from crash landings like Beresheet to rovers that uh, have done their work and and now sit there dormant, you know, the Russian two lunacods and three American rovers. So what what is an artifact and what should be treated historically? So certainly the first boot print, the first human landing, absolutely. Um, Luna 2, the first hard landing on the moon. Luna 9, the first soft landing on the moon. All those firsts we think are really important. But we can't have firsts for everybody, you know, 193 nations, if we can't say, oh, you know, that's that's your first, okay, we'll preserve that. There has to be some sort of a line, and that's one of the things that we're working to figure out, like how are we going to manage what we protect and what we don't? We don't want to protect 100 sites on the moon and say you can't go there. We are very supportive of development and exploration of the moon, and so what we what we're saying is, we're not saying don't develop where any of this stuff is. We're saying stop and think and manage before you go and develop. So if you think about building building an airport or building a road, you know, if you run into in the UK, you can't build a road without running into the remains of a king. Stop, memorialize it, figure out how important that is to our cultural heritage, and then either you know take pictures, pick everything up, and move it. Or say, you know, this is too important. You can't destroy it. So I would say, you know, tranquility base, I would put in that sort of, oh, let's just protect that because it's so important to our cultural heritage and our history and our sense of community. This is that first step. Surveyors, I don't know. I don't think we need to protect all of the surveyor robots that are on the moon. What we'd like to do and, and what we're thinking about now, and this is very, very formative, and we're sort of 
just germinating the seed. I mean, we're, like I said, we're a bunch of lawyers, so we spent about nine months talking about what you know what is human heritage uh, and trying to create a definition. So it's going to take us a while, but our first formative concept is creating a a kind of committee. And, you know, if you think about ICAO, they have the committee and they have different regions represented. So if we can figure out some sort of regional representation, then when a country nominates a site, because it will have to be, I mean, we're living with with this concept, you know, uh, the, the, the entire earth is built on the concept of sovereignty. So when a country nominates a site in space, then they will have to get affirmation or, you know, seconded by at least one country from every region. Or do do something like that, but make make it a the World Heritage Convention is you know a territorial nomination, and then this committee agrees. So something like that. But what's really important to us is to make it universal. And again, that's something that we haven't done that well on Earth yet. You know, I don't think a child growing up in Alabama feels sort of the kinship uh, with the pyramids naturally. But we ought to be able to build that kinship naturally in space. And so how far away can we move away from the, this concept of sovereignty? I don't know. That's something we're going to test um, and something we're talking about. Are there any earth parallels you can draw? I mean, maybe the oceans or, or you mentioned world heritage sites. There's got to be sort of something here on the earth that the international community has worked together on before that you can at least uh, use as examples to draw parallels to. It's interesting because, no, the open seas are not covered by the World Heritage Convention because they don't belong to anybody, and you can't nominate a site that isn't in your territory. My understanding is that UNESCO is starting to think about that because 75% of the earth is water, so that's a large part of the earth that is not protected or not part of this concept of world heritage. And so they are looking at how also at how to cover these spaces that are not part of any territory. It's really great to see, I think, because again, it's going to be a very unifying factor for all of humanity in terms of thinking, whether it's in space or in the high seas, how we do that. I actually think, you know, the aviation community is also a really good model for us. And a lot of people talk about Antarctica or what we do on the high seas or what we've done in aviation. We have a lot of really good models and lessons here on Earth that we can bring with us to space. And we love the the ICAO model and how we were able to figure out how to fly over each other's countries, you know, and, and how to use each other's airports. Again, we'd love to take the concept of, of these spaceports to the moon and have uh, landing pads on the moon so that people aren't just landing willy-nilly anywhere they want. The regolith on the moon is really a nasty sort of very sharp dust. And so if you land too close, for example, to Tranquility Base, you can not only obliterate those boot prints, you can do some real damage to the LEM. When Apollo uh, 12 landed near Surveyor 3, I think they landed about 150 meters away, the regolith, the dust, actually scarred the surveyor, the piece that that was brought back to Earth, was pitted with the regolith. So that's really nasty stuff. And one way to protect both our heritage, these artifacts, and any operational equipment on the moon is to build landing pads where everyone uses the same one. Or, you know, let's build 15 on the moon and and everyone uses those landing pads. It's a great concept. It's, you know, and, and we do it on Earth. Why can't we do it in space? And now that we're looking at this 50th anniversary, I mean, what what do you think that means for the world? And specifically, you know, this is a GA audience that we're talking to today. So what do you think it means for pilots and for uh, all of us who kind of dream of future exploration? 
I was thinking about how when you back in the day when you flew across the country, there were markers across the across the continent, right? So you could see where you were or you could land. And those some of those are preserved. And it really it's so important to preserve those things to remind you how hard things are and how hard things were and how much humans have overcome to to achieve and accomplish things. I mean, to go from Kitty Hawk to the space shuttle, that was that didn't take us long. And so if you think about that, think about going from Apollo, sure, we've stuttered for 50 years. You know, we had no business being on the moon 50 years ago. That's plain and simple. And now when we go back, you know, we should go back and we should stay and, and we should go back properly. And we should go back and we should look at those bootprints and just be amazed at what it took us to get there in the first place and how amazing humanity is that we did it. That was 400,000 people worked on Apollo, 400,000 engineers, 400,000 people with an interest in aviation and space. But they built the Apollo on the backs of even more people from around the world from history. You know, we got there on the backs of astronomers from China and Italy and Greece. This is really just a remarkable human achievement. And I think it's just so inspirational to think about, to, to, to see that blueprint. I'll never be able to see it in person. I hope to be alive long enough for someone to call me from the moon and say, hey, you did it. I'm looking at it and it's protected. It's fantastic. And and whether it's an actual grandchild or just a child that somehow we were able to motivate, that would just mean everything to me. So one thing that we're doing also to sort of raise awareness, both of, of, of our history in space, but also just to get that space bug to bite more more people now. I was amazed to read that when Apollo 17 landed, more people watched All in the Family than the landing. I mean, I just, I can't, to me that, I mean, I, I had the um, honor of uh, sitting in a presentation by Fred Hayes yesterday at Christie's and what a remarkable human being. I mean, they, they all were. And just incredible to think how far away he's been from home, literally, and, and how we got him back. So we are creating this digital registry of all of the sites on the moon with human material on them. Right now, there exists a book by a, uh, a remarkable scholar named Phil Stuck. He does an encyclopedia of material, but it's a book and it costs $400 and it, it can't be updated quickly. So we're taking all the information that we can find publicly, you know, from the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, from websites, from NASA, from Phil Stuck's book, and we're putting it in a digital registry. And we're going to make that available to everybody in the world for free. And so our hope is that you open our website and you go to this registry. And whether you're in Indonesia or Iceland or California, you can click on any one of these hundred sites and you'll see a picture of the site on the moon. You'll see a picture of the material. You'll get a history of what that object was, why it was sent there. For example, U-2-2, you know, first cotton seeds to grow on the moon, things like that. And hopefully, hopefully that will inspire and remind people both how remarkable humans are, how innovative we can be, and also how important space is to us. And so that's, that's my soapbox, um, and I'm going to stay on it. <laughs> well, Michelle Hanlon from uh, For All Moonkind, thanks so much for being with us today, and uh, happy anniversary. Well, thank you, Anne. I really appreciate it. 
All right, David, 50th anniversary. Tell me, where were you for the moon landing? I'm glad you asked that question, Ian. I'm old enough to remember it. I was a little kid, but we were watching it on a black and white TV at my parents' house in Atlanta. And, uh, you know, they launched from Cape Kennedy on July 16, 1969. It was a big deal for us munchkins to stay up kind of (laughs) late on July 20th when uh, when Neil Armstrong uh, made that one small step for man and one giant leap for mankind. It was phenomenal. Yeah, that's so cool. So cool. So you, what you're saying is you you believe it happened, right? You're you're not part of the uh, the conspiracy group that thinks it happened in Hollywood. <laughs> no, I definitely believe it happened, and I know that NASA has gone to uh, great pains to do a lot of research. And in fact, there are many products that we have today that I think you reported on that are the result of some of these space missions. No, I think it definitely happened, and. I covered a couple of the space shuttle missions, so I could tell you they definitely went up in space. Yeah, very cool. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget you could find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk. And you know we're on iTunes at the Sporty's Takeoff app and also on Spotify or at the AOPA social hangar. All right. We'll see you next time, David. See you next time, Ian. Thanks. Hangar Talk. From AOPA, your freedom to fly.